Welcome to the Entrepreneur's MBA, bringing you lessons from real-life entrepreneurs they don't teach in business school. Here's your host, business coach and marketing strategist, Adam Kipnis. So many entrepreneurs spend their careers building their business. They're focused on building, building, building. How do I get more revenue? How do I get more sales? How do I run this thing right? Yet very few think about the most important part of their business, which isn't the revenue that you make during it. It's the money you make on the back end when you sell it. And if you don't plan for it properly, you can put yourself in a very bad situation where you can't get top dollar for it or you can't even get a buyer for it because it's not structured properly for a sale. Today's guest is going is an expert in this. We're going to talk about how do you set up your business from day one to sell it properly so you don't have to go and clean it up and fix it later. This is Adam Kipnis, host of the Entrepreneur's MBA podcast. I appreciate you all listening and being here with me. As always, we are sponsored in part by Network Together. It's a network, nationwide networking group with Zoom calls seven days a week where you can meet other business owners. Go to ntevents.net so you can learn more about them and see the events that they have. And also our platform, C-Suite Radio. Thanks to the folks at C-Suite for uh, giving me the platform and pushing this out there. So now let's get to the meat of this. My guest today is an expert at positioning your business to sell, selling your business, and exiting rich. Michelle Seiler Tucker, thanks for joining me today. I appreciate it. Thanks, Adam. It's good to see you again. It's been a long time. Yes, it has. <laughs> Michelle and I are, are old friends from the event world when we could go to, to live events. And yeah. uh, now we get to, to connect digitally here and talk to all of you. So Michelle, I always like to know, um, you run a, a seven-figure business you um, have grown it substantially over the years. Where did you start? Were you always an entrepreneur when you were a kid or is this something that happened later in life? I would say I would say I had the entrepreneur spirit within me as a kid. Um, I wasn't your typical child. I never played with toys or dolls like other little girls did. I walked around with a notebook and a pen and asked everybody a million questions. So I would walk up to strangers and just start asking them questions. So my mom thought I was gonna be the next Barbara Walters. And so I've always owned businesses um, pretty young. I've owned you know, publishing companies, magazines, event companies, et cetera. But then at one point I did kind of get sucked into corporate America when I went to work for Xerox and um, you know, six figures, great benefits. And I was only there for about six months and my nickname at Xerox was the closer because every time somebody couldn't close a deal, they would call me because I was known as a closer and I always closed every single deal that nobody else could close. So they came to me, my management team came to me six months later and I said, Michelle, you need to interview for the regional manager position, regional vice president overseeing, you know, 85, 95 sales reps. And they said, you'll never get it, but you'll enjoy the experience. <laughs> and I said, why would I spend so much time, energy and effort applying for something I'm never going to get? And they said, because you'll learn so much. And they were right. They said, you will learn so much going through this process. And it was a three month rolling process where you had to demonstrate, you know, high volume uh, copy equipment, printer equipment, you know, Xerox has the big machine. So you had to, to demonstrate them in front of all the high level executives. Plus you had to do a presentation, do a Q and A. And this went on for three months. I ended up getting the position, even, to, even though I was told I never would, because I was competing against people that had been with Xerox for years and years and years, and I had been there for all of six months. 
So I ended up getting it. And then all, all my friends at Xerox hated me because I beat them. <laughs> <laughs> so, but then I, I miss, I, you know, I, I, I love Xerox and I love selling and I love solving problems and I love coming up with solutions, but I don't like the whole corporate environment. Well, when you're in that management position, you're having, you're scheduling a meeting to schedule a meeting to actually have a meeting and then you schedule a follow-up meeting on that meeting, you know? So we were always in meetings and we weren't really accomplishing anything. And so I set out to look for a franchise I could buy on the side. I was actually going to keep working at Xerox and climb up that corporate ladder. But then I set out to, to buy a franchise and um, I stumbled across this one company and my husband knew one of the owners and they had two locations. I said, look, I wanna buy a franchise. You know, I'll hire people. I'm gonna keep my position at Xerox. And they said, no, Michelle, we know of you. We know of your reputation and we want you to partner with us. And we want you to put us on the map and help us grow our franchise organization. And then, and then they said, we'll give you a franchise if you do that. So I said, look, I'm not gonna quit, quit my six figure position with great benefits for a company that has two locations. I don't know if you could be successful, you know? And they said, well, you're the rainmaker, you can do it. So I said, look, here's what I'll do. I'll try for six months and we'll see what happens, but I'm gonna keep my day job. So <laughs> weekends and evenings, I would travel a bunch. I would go to Arizona you know, in your neck of the woods. And I would um, go to Texas, Georgia, all these different states. And I really worked hard. I was working nights, weekends. I, I don't think I slept for six months. I made more money in those six months than I did an entire year working at Xerox. So then after I beat everybody out of that, you know, high level position, <laughs> I then quit. <laughs> and so then I put the franchise company on the map selling hundreds of franchises because I like I said I made more money in six months than an entire year at Xerox but then they did something that all companies do or most companies do I should say they grew really fast and they didn't build a solid foundation to handle the growth so you know this and you're in business consulting they did not grow the foundation to handle the growth. So all the sites started crumbling, everything around them started crumbling. They were over-promising and under-delivering. And I was friends with my franchisees, you know that. I, I make friends with people. And I would go to their weddings, I would go to their hospitals when they had babies, I would go to their birthday parties, I would stay at their house when I came into town. And so I was constantly fighting with my partner saying, look, they're right, you're wrong. And they're like, you're on our team. I go, no, 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 I'm on their team. I'm on the franchisees team because we sold them a bill of goods and we have to deliver. And if you're not gonna deliver, buy me out. And that's what happened. So they ended up, um, they didn't wanna buy me out. So I had to, you know, of course, um, get legal involved and ended up getting them to buy me out. And then I transitioned into mergers and acquisitions. First, I started selling smaller companies. Um, and then very quickly, I started selling large businesses to million and up. And then I learned very quickly that what Steve Forbes says is true. Eight out of 10 businesses don't sell. <laughs> So I either have to fix them and help grow them and build them to sell, or I don't eat. <laughs> so right. then I transition to buying, selling, growing, fixing. So I buy companies, I flip them. I also partner with business owners and help them. I invest my money, my time, my energy, my effort into helping them grow a business that's sellable for their desired price tag. So that's, that's the awesome. story. <laughs> there, there's, there's the story. And, and, yeah. um, I know it well. So you, Michelle's written several books talking about this topic, but most business brokers and, and even most business consultants 
live in sort of a finite space of you want $5 million for your business. We'll put it out there for $5 million. If you don't get a buyer, oh, well, on to the next one. Mm -hmm. uh, kind of like realtors, if you won't come off your price to sell your house, they say, I can't sell it. And they go and find another house to list. How did you transition into not only the, the knowledge and wherewithal to help them fix it, but just identifying this was a niche that needed to be served better than it was. And you were the person to do it. How did I do what? How did I, how did I? How did just the process of identifying that this was a niche that you could serve and needed you to do it. I mean, you essentially created a company that a lot of people are in, but don't do what you do. They don't do that part of it. Yeah. So I just, you know, I love the industry. You know, when I first got into this industry and I walked into M&A Source, which is a mergers and acquisitions convention, I walked in and, and I was one woman out of like 3,000 <laughs> balded men. <laughs> and then one other woman walked in. But, you know, I, for me, I've always been, I've always been um, really focused about delivering superior client service and being an expert at what you do and not an order taker. And most of these business brokers are order takers. So if the client says, I want $5 million, they say, okay, and they write it up and I stick it up there on Biz by Sell or one of the other listing sites and hope to sell it for $5 million. One of my girlfriends who lives in Houston, um, who I met through m and Source, I traveled with her one day and so several listing meetings, engagement meetings in Houston, and the client would tell her, oh, I want $10 million. And she'd, she'd say, okay. And I go, what do you mean, okay? You don't know his financials. <laughs> you don't know what the business is worth. How can you say, okay? And she goes, Michelle, I just take the listing and then I'll let my buyers educate them. And I go, that's a horrible way to do business. A horrible way to do business. So look, at the end of the day, you know, we're really selling somebody's most prized possession, which is their business. You know, in most cases, this is a retirement fund. This is their nest egg. This is their most prized possession. And the intermediary needs to have a fiduciary duty and do what's best for their client and get off their butt <laughs> and go to work and do the evaluation and tell them what's right with their business and tell them what's wrong with their business and tell them what they need to fix in order to get that price tag and be truthful because otherwise you're just going to put the business up there and here's what's going to happen. You put the business up there for 5 million, it's never going to sell for 5 million. And then the business owner's business is probably going down, down, down. They're going to end up having to sell for pennies on a dollar, close their business or even worse, follow bankruptcy. And you as an intermediary help cause that. Right. That's a horrible way to do business. And I don't do business that way. I've always based my business on ethics, on doing the right thing. I'm putting my client's agenda first over mine and, you know, making sure that I know what I'm doing and I'm the best at what I do for my client. Does that make sense? Did I answer your question? Yeah, no, it, it makes total sense. And I think it leads me to another question. Um, just because uh, two more questions actually, but a lot of business owners don't, um, they don't run their business to sell it. They think they want to sell it and they know that there's, um, you know, a, a liquidity event or a monetization plan at the end, but they don't actually plan it. So they run it from their own perspective and 
they tend to, I've worked with companies that have five, 10, $15 million in revenue that they're still the most important piece of their business, mm-hmm. right? They, the mm-hmm. clients know them, their, their team can't close deals. They have a team of operational folks. And so they can't step away from their business, therefore making it unsellable. Mm-hmm. How do you guide your business owners that you work with and also new business owners to set up a business in a way that it can be sold? Yeah. So that's all in Exit Rich in my new book. And you have to read Exit Rich because you read Sell Your Business for One and It's Worth and Exit Rich has so much more meat and potatoes. <laughs> so first I work with, with, we'll talk about the newbies on the blog. So first I'll, I'll work with clients, startups, and even business owners that never planned their exit before with what I call the STGPS exit model, okay? So that's step one. So step one is determine from the day you buy your business or start your business, determine what is your end game. Now that end game might change, but start with something. What is your end game? What do you want to sell your business for? Come up with a price. If you want to sell your business for $20 million, then great. There's your destination. For a GPS, you need a destination. What else do you need? You need a current location. So you need a valuation to know where you're starting from. And Adam, I don't know if you're surprised by this, but most business owners have no idea what their business is worth because they never get a business checkup. We go and we get health checkups, we get our car checked up, but we never get our business checked up. So you need to know what's your end game, what's your destination, where are you starting from? So if you want to sell for $20 million and you're worth $5 million, what's your time frame? You want to sell for seven years? Okay, you want to sell in seven years. Reverse engineer it. So now you know $20 million, your current value is $5 million. You want to do it within seven years. Who's your buyers? And what's their buying criteria? So there's five types of buyers. Let's say you're in manufacturing. Who buys manufacturing companies for $20 million? Well, let's see who you can eliminate. You can eliminate turnaround specialists. They're not going to buy you. You can eliminate startups. They're not going to buy you. So either a PEG, which is a private equity group that buys based on platforms and add-ons, or strategic slash competitor, or a serial sophisticated entrepreneur. Okay, those three are your buyers. Now, what is their buying criteria? Where does their gross revenues have to be? Where does the gross profit margin have to be? Most importantly, where does the EBITDA have to be? Earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, amortization. So figure that out, reverse engineer it, and then determine your why. You know as well as I do, if a business owner, an entrepreneur doesn't have a powerful why, they will never accomplish their goals. Exactly. Because in business, we have catastrophic events occur, internal and external. We just had COVID. Or we have COVID, I should say. Right. (laughs) We're still in it. So we have COVID. We have, you know, hurricanes. We have fires. We have all kinds of things. So your why has to be big enough to keep you in the game. Now, here's the other thing. When you determine your three types of buyers or your your two types of buyers, What is their buying criteria? Where do the numbers have to be? And if you don't know this information, call somebody like me because all I got to do is do research and within a matter of minutes, I already know. Then what's their buying criteria in addition to the numbers? All buyers buy off of what I call the six Ps. And we talk about the Siler Tucker six Ps and exit rich. Do you want me to tell you what they are, Adam? Let's run through them, yeah. (laughs) You still got to get the book, but run through them. So we were, so we So number one, is people. 
Number one P is people. Like you just made the comment earlier. You said, you know, you got a business that's doing 10, $15 million. The owner's still doing everything. He's still doing the sales. He's still dealing with the clients. He is the business. There's nothing to sell. And that can't be more that you cannot. That is so true. Like you couldn't have said it any better than that. Because if the owner is the business, you have nothing to sell. You take that owner out of the business and the business is not sellable. Take a dental lab. No, or say, take a dentist's office who has one dentist and no other dentist. You sell that business, pull the dentist out, there go the clients, all right? So number one, it's people. You don't build a business, you build people and people build the business. So you have to have the right people in the right seats. And you have to ask yourself the who question. Who in your business opens doors? Who in your business deals with, with sales? Who in your business deals with marketing? Who deals with customer acquisitions? Who deals with client concerns or client issues? Who deals with environmental issues, tax issues, accounting, manufacturing, distribution? The list goes on and on. Here's the clue. The clue is don't ever put you next to the who. <laughs> <laughs> so you need to know who next to each one of those. And the who should never be you, Adam. <laughs> Got it. So that's number one is people. And you have to have management team in place too, because if a buyer is buying a 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 million dollar company, they're gonna want a CEO. They're gonna want, you know, some management team in place. So you gotta make sure that you have built a company with people. Uh, buyers don't want to buy a job, they want to buy a business. The second P is product. And probably one of the most important piece. So you have to ask yourself, is your product, your industry on the way up or on the way out? Do you have an Amazon or do you have a Blockbuster? And if right. you have a Blockbuster, then guess what? You better get some expert advice. You better call Adam or you better call me. <laughs> and you better align yourself with an expert who's been down this road before because you need to pivot. You need to ask yourself, what business are you in? What do you do really, really, really well? And what business should, should, the operative word is should you be in? So let me give you an example to illustrate that point. Amazon, what business did they start in? Books. Books. So Amazon said, what business are we in? We're in books. We sell books. What do we do really well? We do fulfillment really, really, really well. What business should we be in? Ding dong, ding dong, ding dong. We should be in the fulfillment business. <laughs> and those three questions right there is what changed Amazon into the global multi, multi-billion dollar company that they are today is because of those three questions. They acquired, they acquired Whole Foods. They acquired Zappos, you know, and they continue to acquire other businesses because of those three questions. Now, those are transformational questions. And the problem is that most business owners get stuck in the transactional and they're so busy with the day-to-day, -day, they don't do any tr anything transformational in which to really change their business. That one small question, that one small tweak can catapult your business to the next level like Amazon did. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense, yeah. So product is huge. The other P is process. So process is typically overlooked by business owners because when I start their business, they're not like, oh, let me design my process. They typically don't think about processes until something 
bad occurred in their business. Like let's say it's a manufacturing business and they had a catastrophic injury occur. Now they're going to be thinking about processes on safe health and safety issues, right? Right. Because workers' comp is going to make them do that. <laughs> or let's say that they have a customer service issue. Now they might look at processes. But here's the problem. Processes, just like your exit, should be designed from day one and it should be designed with the customer experience in mind. So let me give you a real quick example, if we have time. Quick example. Yes. So have you ever watched the movie, The Founder? Yes, I have. Great movie, right? So the Mac you have the McDonald brothers and you have Ray Kroc. The McDonald brothers are the ones who started McDonald's. Ray Kroc is the one who built it into the empire it is today. So the McDonald brothers started McDonald's back in the 40s. And back in the 40s, you had the drive-in restaurants where they would come out on roller skates and deliver your food. The problem is the order was always wrong, the food was always cold, and it took forever. So McDonald's said, our mission, our customer objective is to provide great tasting quality food, get the order right in two minutes or less. Great tasting quality food, two minutes or less. So they go out to an empty tennis court. Do you remember this? I do, yes. And they take out all their employees and they drew out the process on the tennis court. And then they erased it and they drew it again and they kept bumping into each other to figure it out. Finally, they figured it out. Who's gonna, who's gonna take the customer's orders? Who's gonna toast the buns? Who's gonna cook that burger? Who's gonna put the pickles on the buns and who's gonna hand it to the client two minutes or less? So they designed the process with the customer experience in mind. Nobody does that. So what was their mission? What was their objective? To provide fast quality food in two minutes or less. That's why you can go to McDonald's in Russia, Singapore, Australia, USA, and the experience is the same because the process was done with the experience in mind, created with the experience in mind. It's productive, it's efficient. You can be duplicated over and over and over and over again. It's documented and the employees are all trained on it. And that's the key to processes. I can tell you company after company, and you can probably tell me the same thing, Adam, a business owners do the opposite. They design their process with their agenda in mind, not with the customer experience in mind. Exactly. Or even worse, they design it based on need at the moment. Oh, a client just asked for this. Well, we better bolt that thing on here and we'll deliver that as well. And it doesn't flow. Things get missed. It's never documented. You get a new employee and now you have to teach them through trial and error because there's not a process for them to follow. Right. So, I, I, I mean, people, product, process makes so much sense and almost all businesses do it backwards. They absolutely each of those do. categories. Yeah, not, you know, I have, I have my daughters. Um, I don't want to say too much information because I want to give it away. <laughs> <laughs> People start calling me. But I have my daughter's dance studio and, um, you know, we had, we had a hurricane. So she apparently canceled class at four o'clock on a Monday and classes for 5.30 on a Monday. She sent an email. Well, I get over 500 emails a day. So I don't always see all my emails and neither does my husband. And she notifies us on private Facebook group. So I asked her, I said, look, going forward, can you please send out a text? She said, no, we, we don't do that. We don't send out text. We're too big for that. I said, really? Universities do it. You're not as big as a university. <laughs> <laughs> and she says, well, this is what we do. We send emails. 
and we have private Facebook. You can go check private Facebook. I said, ma'am, I'm not a stay at home mom. And you know what? God bless to stay at home moms, but I don't have time to do that. And she says, well, it's not an option for us to do it this year. I said, oh, so it's an option to inconvenience your clients. I get it. I said, my IT guy could do it for you a matter of minutes and I'll pay for it. And she said, it's not that we don't know how to do it. It's that we're just not going to. Wow. Wow. Now, is that a process designed for her agenda or for her clients? That's her, her, she doesn't want to do it. She probably doesn't like getting text messages. And so therefore she says, I'm not sending out text messages, even if it's better, faster, easier, and cheaper. And it's better for her clients. Yep. Yeah. So, so my daughter actually left math tutoring early to make it. They race over there and there is no class. <laughs> so when I see examples like that, it drives me crazy. Cause I'm like, this is what will drive you out of business. This is this kind of stuff that will drive you out of business. Would you agree? I would agree hundred percent. Yeah. So then the fourth P is proprietary. So there's six pillars to proprietary <clears throat> and proprietary is the number one value driver. Proprietary will bring you more money than anything else. Okay. Number one, how well branded are you? The more well branded you are, then the more money you can get for your company, as long as your brand is still relevant in the eyes of the consumers. Toys R Us, who went out of business, brand might be worth something, but nothing like it used to be worth, right? Right. So who do you think is the biggest brand? In the world, Apple, Amazon, Apple. Walmart. Apple, Apple, $389 billion just for the brand. That's not assets, that's not inventory, that's not, um, EBITDA, that's not real estate, that's not anything. The Coca-Cola brand is 89 billion. So build your brand, build your exit. <laughs> Number two is trademarks. Trademarks are huge. Here's a mistake the business owners make, Adam, is they go out there, they get a state, they get a, a, a local trademark in their state. They never check to make sure it's available. They never get a federal trademark. Years will go by and all of a sudden they'll receive a cease and desist letter because somebody else has that trademark. And then they start spending thousands upon thousands upon thousands of dollars to protect their company name, protect their company brand, and they're gonna lose. And then they end up having to change their company name. So for $1,500, $1,700, go get a federal trademark because you can have that company name for 10 years. And if you don't have a federal trademark, somebody could come in now and claim that and you're out of business and all the money you spent on branding is down the drain. Huge. Wow. And then also trademark your slogans. Like I trademark Solid Tucker 6P, Solid Tucker GPS Exit, Exit Rich. You know, anything that's proprietary to you, get a federal trademark. It's not that expensive. Protect your IP. Also, if you have something creative, get a patent. We once had a company that had 18 patents that we sold for $18 million, a million dollars a patent, <laughs> you know? Also yep. contracts, get contracts with your distributors, your vendors, your manufacturers. Most importantly, most valuable is client contracts. Client contracts will bring you more money and a higher multiple than most anything else. Here's the caveat. You got to make sure you have the two sentence transferability clause in your contract. 
And I will tell you 99.9% .9 of business owners don't have it. And 99.9% .9 of all deals are asset sales. So if you don't have that transferability clause, your business could go, your business deal could fall apart that quick. So I work with my clients to make sure they get that transferability clause. We're selling a $72 million company right now. They have 150 contracts and only two are transferable. And it's their two most recent ones because we sent them the language. <laughs> so transferability is huge. Here's another one that's huge is databases. Most databases are overlooked and undervalued by most brokers because they don't know what to do with them. I know what to do with them. And they can be retargeted and repurposed. We can get you a lot of money for your database. Facebook paid $19 billion for WhatsApp, 19 billion. And WhatsApp was hemorrhaging money. They weren't making any money whatsoever, but they had a billion users and Facebook knew they could ROI that, they can monetize that. Here's the other thing that's big in IP and proprietary. I call it business real estate. That's not your building, that's not your land. It is your real estate, your IP real estate. So let's say that you sell bed sheets and you're number one on Wayfair. And let's say I got a pillowcase company <laughs> and they want that number one spot on Wayfair. What do you think they're gonna do? You think they're gonna pay more for that synergy? If they got the money. If they got the money, absolutely. So that's a huge, huge, huge value driver is that IP. Let's say that you make a unique, um, let's say you make, make a unique coffee pot and you have a patent on it and you corner the market on Amazon. That's a value driver. Let's say that you, ha you have a skincare line and you're on, you're on Oprah Winfrey's favorite things. <laughs> and let's say you have uh, Glenn Beck or somebody like that endorse it. That's prime real estate that's very, very, very hard to get because they only endorse one skincare company. Right. Okay. So that's, that's all value drivers. All right, so the fifth P is patrons, which is your client base. Now you need to look at your client base and ask yourself, does it follow the golden rule? The golden rule is 80% of your business comes from 20% of your clients. If 80% of your revenue comes from 20% of your clients, and you lose a few clients, you're in big trouble. So you right. gotta make sure you don't have customer concentration. Um, you wanna make sure you have customer diversification. Now, here's the other thing. If you've been in business 20, 30, 40, 50 years, your clients are probably aging out. So you have to replace those clients, right? Right. So here's what business owners stop doing. They stop asking their clients, what do you need? What do you want? How can I make your life easier? That's what Amazon does. What do you need? What do you want? How can I make your life easier? Oh, you want to buy a horse. You can buy a horse on Amazon and have it in two days. You know? <laughs> so, and that's why, and I, you know, we didn't really talk about this, but we'll talk about this in a few minutes about how even before COVID, the business landscape has changed dramatically. Um, but anyway, you want to make sure you keep asking your clients, what do you want? How can I make it easier for you to do business? Because if you don't make it easier for your clients to do business with you, somebody else will. And just like this dance studio, I'll take my daughter to another one. <laughs> so make it easy for your clients to do business with you. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. And then the last P, which I think is one of the most important P's, is profits. 
And people, you know, I've had people ask me, Michelle, why do you put profits last? Because if you don't do the other five right, you're not going to have a lot of profits. And profits is never the problem. It's always a symptom. Never the problem. It's always a symptom of not having the right people in the right seats. Maybe the owner has her name next to all the who's and they're doing everything themselves. So therefore, you're not going to be as profitable. Um, perhaps your product is dying and not thriving. So therefore, you've lost market share, which you've lost profits. Your processes are not efficient, not productive. You're, you're losing clients because you have not designed your process with the customer experience in mind. Your proprietary is not protected. So you're spending thousands upon thousands of dollars to protect your IP, or you have to start from ground zero because you lost your company name. Or you've lost your clients because you made it about you and not about them. So profits is never, ever the problem. It's the symptom of not operating on one of these five Ps. And even if you never want to sell your business again, or ever want to sell your business, period, build a business to operate on all six Ps so at least you can have a sustainable, scalable business that's profitable. And then if you ever decide you want to sell it, then it is sellable. So those are the six Ps. I, I love it. And thanks for taking the time to go through that. It, it's so important because as you were saying that, I'm thinking to myself, there are people out there who have a family business and they're like, we're never going to sell it. Why would I do all of these things? And you've just nailed it at the end. If you don't do those things, you are asking to go out of business at some point. Family businesses die all the time because the founder or maybe the person that grew it from the founder of the second or third generation ramped it up, but didn't put a lot of these things in place so it could run on its own with the third, fourth, fifth generation, right? Exactly. And nowadays, you know, the children don't want their parents' business anymore. Companies are not handed down from generation to generation like they once were because children want to go out and create their own masterpiece. But let me just tell you, I mean, that was a great point you just made because family offices will close. The business landscape has changed dramatically. When I wrote Sell Your Business for More Than It's Worth in 2013, the book that you read, and I did the research back then, I learned that 85 to 95% of startups, <coughs> businesses that have been in business one to five years would go out of business. You know that. We all know that. We all know startups are at great risk, right? We know that. And yep. it, was always, it was always a well-known fact that if you've been in business five years or longer, boy, you're golden. You're going to be in business for a long time. Well, that's not the case anymore. There's 30.2 million businesses in the United States employing over half the U.S. workforce, over half the U.S. workforce. Business, small business is, our, is the backbone of our economy. Without small businesses, you have loss of jobs. You have loss of spending power. Now, when I wrote Exit Rich in 2019 and did the same research that I did in 2013, only 30% of startups are going out of business now. Only 30, not 85 to 95 anymore. Only 30. So startups, go start your business. <laughs> your risk is decreased. However, those businesses, now out of a sampling of 27.6 million companies, remember there's only 30.2 million companies, out of a sampling of 26.6 million companies, 27.6 million, those businesses have been in business 10 years or longer, 70% of those businesses will go out of business. Seven, zero. It flip-flopped. 
So it used to be startups will go out of business. Now it's not startups. Now it's businesses have been in business over 10 years. Do you know why? Now, listen, before I asked you, you know why, you, you know this. Everybody knows this, but here's what you know. You know about the public companies because you hear the stories every day. Toys R Us went out of business. JC Penney's went out of business. Kmart went out of business. Dymart went out of business. Pier One went out of business. Um, GNC is closing down 900 locations. Starbucks is in trouble. You hear these stories. What you're not hearing are the private companies. All the private companies on every street corner in every city in every state across our great nation, these businesses are dropping like flies. And they're being forced to, to unfortunately, sell for pennies on a dollar, close their business, or even worse, file bankruptcy. And when business owners file bankruptcy, they don't just lose their personal assets, they lose their business assets too. I mean, they lose not just their business assets, their personal right. assets, I said it backwards. And the reason for that, it's not because they set up their corporate structure wrong, they set it up right, but they pierced the corporate veil because at some point they signed a personal guarantee. At some point they took a mortgage out against their home. And when you do that, now you've involved your personal assets. Okay. So the landscape has changed dramatically. And the number one reason why 70% of businesses go out of business now that been in business 10 years is lack of aim. Aim is always innovate and market. They stop innovating. They stop asking, what do you need? What do you want? How can I make it easier to do business? And the, the, co the company that makes it easiest for you to do business with them, they're the company that's winning. Amazon is winning because they make it so easy to do business with them. And when you think about these numbers and you think about the environment that we're, that we're in, Right. A lot of businesses are closing and they're going to say it's because of COVID. Right. They're this going to was blame all before COVID. COVID. This was in 2019. Right. Yeah. It's interesting because they're going to say it's COVID because that's the easy excuse. Right. But their, their business was not positioned properly for any environment. This just happened to maybe accelerate it by a year or two, but they didn't position it right. Correct. They might have been positioned right for the timing when they started their business but you can't keep doing things the way you've always done them because things change. Buying habits change. Consumers' buying habits has changed dramatically. Consumers do not buy products and services the way they used to. We used to go to the mall as kids. You right. know, now nobody wants to go to the mall. They want to rock climb. They want to go boning. They want to do a thousand other things. You know, So consumers' buying habits have changed and the business owners haven't changed along with them. Now you can thank Amazon for helping to change your buying habits because that's what good innovative companies do. Good innovative companies tell you not so much what you want, but what you need. Like Apple, they completely redesigned their company because you know they were in computers, but they completely re redesigned and said, you have to have an iPhone. <laughs> you have to have an iPad. You have to have an iPod. You have to have you know, all of this I, 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 because they told us what we needed before we even knew we needed it. They've already planted the seeds of what we needed before we knew we needed it. And Amazon has changed the way that everybody does business. Now, since COVID, COVID has changed the way that, that consumers buy products and services too, by the way. The way that COVID has changed it is you didn't used to go on Amazon to buy your groceries. Now you go to either Amazon or Walmart. Nobody wants to go grocery shopping anymore because they're fearful of COVID. So now 
You can go to Amazon because they bought Whole Foods, or you can go buy your groceries at Walmart, or other stores are starting to follow suit and say, hey, order your groceries online, pick them up, you know, drive up and we'll put them in your car. So buy, I don't think consumer habits are ever going to go back to the way they were. And I think businesses have to innovate figure it out and ask themselves, what business are we in? What did we do really well? What business should we be in? And be transformational or they're going to end up out of business. No, I think that's so important. And, and as, as we wrap up here, because we're, we're about at time, when you think about innovation, right? A lot of business owners are like, they, they might rack their brains trying to innovate, right? Trying to think of the next new thing. But if you followed, if they followed your six Ps, they had the right people, they had the right products and continuing to look for more, they had the right processes in place, they had something proprietary in their business, whether you're an accountant and you do taxes or bookkeeping a different way, or whether you manufacture something, or whether you're a tennis coach, there's something proprietary about what you're doing. Yeah, Talk everybody has a USP, everybody has a unique selling proposition. Right, yeah. and if we position it properly and take care of it, that's innovation in and of itself because it's going to continue to get better. You talk to your patrons, you know, you talk to your clients. And then if your business is profitable, the more profitable it is, the more you can weather storms, be it a hurricane or be it COVID. And if you do all of those things, now you've just positioned yourself to be more innovative because you're listening to your clients. You have the money to, to try new things. You've got products that you can expand on. You've got the right people and it's all yours. It's all proprietary. So I, I, I love that. Any and everyone, go and check out um, Exit Rich. I read the first book, super easy to read. This one is going to be great. I read excerpts from it. You just heard enough to wet your whistle on why you should read it. No matter where your business is, the information in it will tell you what to do. So you have a business that can be sold when the time is right. Any parting words, Michelle? Well, I want to tell them a little bit about Exit Rich and how they can get it now. Yeah. So definitely. you can go to Exit Rich Book. So make sure you go to exitrichbook.com. You can buy it Amazon, Hudson, all the retailers, but don't go there because at exitrichbook.com it's 24.79, which includes shipping. Everywhere else is 27.97 plus shipping. So for 24.79, you will receive the digital download today. So immediately you can start reading Exit Rich. You will receive a lifetime membership into the Exit Rich Book Club. And into that book club, I have video trainings where I go in depth on strategies and techniques and how to ask those transformational questions. Plus I have all the digital downloads. So if you've never seen an organizational chart or an employee handbook or a sample letter of intent or a sample closing documents or due diligence checklist, all the documents that you need to sell your business are there. <laughs> so you need to go familiarize yourself with these. Plus you also get 30 days membership in the club CEOs which is a club that I founded in order to provide some Q and A's, some one-on-one, -on -one, you know, tips to entrepreneurs on how they can pivot and how they cannot just survive this pandemic, but thrive once it's over. So they'll get that as well. And then in January, we'll ship the book to their doorstep. So for 2479, that's a lot of value. No, that's a ton. And thank you for that. And that's exitrichbook.com exitrichbook.com. Yes. And then they can also text Michelle to 888-361-0066. And then all my websites and social media will pop up. Nice. That's awesome. 
And uh, Michelle's a great follow on social media. Not only does she talk about business, she interviews great people. She has friends with some amazing people. Sharon Lecter, who's been on the show, is a co-author of Exit Rich. Uh, plus, she's got really uh, great, fun pictures of her family on there. So you get to get to know her a little My bit. My daughter. Well. <laughs> How old is Arabella now? She's 10. She just turned she's 10. 10. How old are the boys? Everyone's good. 13 oh. and 12. Oh my God, they're growing up. Yeah. Yeah. They were so, just little, but they were always so well behaved at conferences. <laughs> yeah. Arabella would be swimming in the pool and they would be sitting there listening. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's awesome. It's good to see you. Thank you for the information. Thanks for sharing so much of the information in the book. Everyone, go get the book. Thank you, Michelle Seiler Tucker, for being with me today. Thank you, Adam. Good to see you. I you too. It. We'll talk soon. Okay. Sounds Thank good. You. Bye-bye. You. You've been listening to The Entrepreneur's MBA. Download Adam's free book, How to Make More Money in Your Business, at www.freebookfromadam.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.